Okay, why don't we get started? Uh, welcome everyone to, uh, to this lecture. My name is Mark Shankerman. I'm a professor of economics here at the London School of Economics, <clears throat> and I'll be chairing uh, these proceedings if my voice holds out. Um, I want to set out the running sort of uh, procedure for the, for the discussion, and then uh, to introduce our our guest. Um, the procedure is that uh, I guess Chris, Christopher Schroeder will speak for roughly a half an hour, uh, give or take, um, and then we'll open it up for questions and, uh, and answers, um, a, a discussion period that can run up to 7.30, as long as the questions uh, are there. And um, I, I encourage you to, uh, to actively engage and uh, we'll keep it as, as informal and uh, interactive as, as possible. Um, when we get to the question and answer period, I would appreciate it if you would identify yourself uh, and your affiliation and, uh, and keep the question uh, as concise as, uh, as possible so we can have lots of, of people ask questions. <clears throat> uh, so let me turn then to, uh, to introduce uh, our guest. It's a real pleasure for me to uh, welcome Christopher Schroeder uh, to the LSE today. And I would like to thank him for what will surely be a fascinating talk on his newly published book, 2013, uh, published book by uh, Paul Grave and Macmillan. Uh, here it is, it's Startup Rising, The Entrepreneurial Revolution, Remaking the Middle East. And uh, there are copies outside, actually, uh, if you would like to buy them. Um, it's a fascinating read, and uh, I highly recommend it to you. Uh, Christopher is a U.S.-based uh, internet entrepreneur and venture uh, investor, uh, having run WashingtonPost.Newsweek uh, uh, Interactive and co-founded uh, HealthCentral.com, which is a social platform on uh, health issues, on health and wellness. He's also backed a dozen or so startups in the last three years and is an ongoing investor in the leading Silicon Valley uh, venture capital fund. Uh, in 2010, uh, Mr. Schroeder wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post about the startups uh, and startup activity in Dubai, and he was subsequently invited by then uh, Secretary of State, U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, to judge a startup competition in Cairo. And uh, the book is actually uh, much about those experiences and the lessons uh, that uh, we can learn from them. Um, Christopher is also on the board, uh, boards of advisors at the American University of Cairo uh, School of Business and of regional startup resources including Wanda and Oasis 500 and currently lives in Washington, D.C. So please, um, please join me in welcoming Christopher uh, to the LSE. <coughs> I can't thank you enough for being here because this is, shall we say, a counter-narrative. At least it's a counter-narrative of the United States, we're going to come back in a second, because narrative is a big thing that I want to talk to you about, not only in terms of this book, but in the way I think all of us think and process things, no matter where we are, what our stage is overall. A very good friend of mine in Washington has been in the publishing business for 30 or 40 years, and when he heard that I was writing this book, he kind of paused and stared at me for a minute. He said, clearly you are a contrarian entrepreneur. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, because in 30 years in the business, I can tell you that two and only two kinds of books never sell. And those are books on the Middle East, and those are books on the Internet. And so the fact that I combine them in one sitting 
uh, in a lot of respects, pushed his narrative, and I hope, my prayer is, that it pushes the narrative to other people as well. And I'd like to start with narrative, because I think one of the things which is very true for those of you who are from the United States, you know, but I would suggest this is true in uh, Western Europe, generally speaking, is that we all become incredibly glued to a narrative. We are a narrative animal. We like you know, the stories that we have and that we can piece them together. And things that come outside of our narratives are sometimes things that we're not willing to absorb uh, very well. I don't know how many of you people have read The Black Swan or some of the other books that have examined this, but we're not a very numerate people. We don't like to look at the data again if it breaks up anything that we're thinking about in terms of our narrative. In the case of the Middle East, obviously, there is one narrative. And it's been very frustrating to me, as I'll come back to you, as I have gone around and done a fair amount of media to sort of listen with the kinds of questions I get for journalists about this, because they think that, in effect, the Middle East, generally speaking, the Arab world in particular, is just one kind of a story. It's about political unrest and instability. And they don't look at some of the evidence which is just as apparent and just as large in what's happening overall. And I think it's risk for all of us. And I encourage you that in your lives, whatever stories you have, whatever politics you believe, whatever things that you have, that you from time to time stop and think about whether or not the evidence presents itself in a powerful way. Because in some respects, if anyone should have had no narrative about the Middle East, and I'm embarrassed to say that mine was as bad as anyone else, it is me. I have traveled all over the world many times. I've run three internet companies that have outsourced technology literally from South America to Israel, uh, to different parts of Eastern Europe, and even parts of Africa. And when I first began to hear about startups in the Arab world, I couldn't break through in my narrative. I could not believe that at the time, Mubarak's Egypt would be a place yielding an ecosystem of anything of any value whatsoever. And it was two very remarkable men who I write about in the book, and it alludes to the Dubai conference that began to press on this issue. One of them is a, actually a Pakistani a man named Araf Naqvi, who built uh, with $50,000, which is now a virtually $10 billion private equity firm that's investing only in uh, emerging growth markets overall, which the Middle East is component, and now it's everywhere else. Um, and then Fadi Gandor, who any of you who are from the Middle East probably know who he was, but he built a company called Aramex, which is effectively the Fed, he hates when I say this, by the way, I should tell you, but it's effectively the FedEx of the Middle East and Africa, and he did this from scratch. I mean, he had relationships and all, but he built it fundamentally from scratch and made it into a multi-billion dollar company. And both these men are very remarkable, not only for their success as business people, but from the beginning, their utter commitment to using their business success to get back into the community. Right now, it sometimes is a PR buzzword, but they are actually adamant about corporate social responsibility, both in the way they run their operations and in terms of what they believe should be done in the community around them. And they began maybe 2009 or so telling me about startups in the Arab world, and I just couldn't break it through. And in 2010, as the professor was noting, they put their money where their mouth was, and they had a gathering in Dubai, which they called um, a Celebration of Entrepreneurship. And they dragged me effectively as a token internet guy from America, because they couldn't get anybody from Silicon Valley to come. Actually, that's not true. I think uh, from Google came. He's wonderful. But that was the way that I got there. And I can tell you that I view my entire world outlook and my own narrative bias as before that event and after that event. Because this was in the fall of 2010, and it was 2,400 young people from North Africa to Yemen, the 2,000-person waiting list that had no interest at all about talking about politics of any form. They certainly couldn't care one iota about President Obama's Cairo speech or any of that dynamic. They were there from early in the morning to late at night to think about building things in very, very powerful ways. In other words, it's exactly what is happening everywhere in the world right now. And I think it's one of the things that people most misunderstand. Because the big story, and this is not only true about the Arab world, but I think it's about emerging growth markets. I hate the word development, by the way, developing roles. I mean, it's patronizing. 
I think that we are talking about growth markets and new kinds of opportunities, which in my view, very excitingly, is really being leveraged by the incredible diffusion of, of amazing, not only technology, but as my friend and forward writer of the book, Mark Andreessen, says, technology that works, right? I mean, technology's been around for 20 years in different kinds of forms, even in the last five years. But in the last five years, the facility and ease and access that almost anybody has anywhere, where it really works with an amazing ability of simplicity and amazing ability of low cost, is changing the dynamic in very, very uh, profound ways. I remember about four or five years ago, I actually was asked by the publisher then of the Washington Post Company, who's a dear friend and a mentor named Don Graham, if I'd be willing to actually visit Korea and Japan to immerse myself in the technology evolution that was happening in what these were once called developing or emerging markets overall. And there's a funny joke that obviously, like in most jokes, there's a lot of truth that's in this, that, that anyone who's been to Asia in the last year or so is called a futurist. And that was the theory overall to go this. And so I went back there to see what was going on. And what I can tell you is that I was so prepared to see a technological revolution, lights flashing in all many directions, that I was ready to see everything and anything and was stunned to see fundamentally nothing. And what I mean by that was, frankly, most of the people had no idea why I even came. It was like water or like electricity. It was absolutely assumed in the way people were thinking about themselves and the creations of communications and everything else. And what it has meant there is it's meant everywhere is that everyone can see how everyone else is living. People can connect in very, very profound ways like they never could before, which means shared innovation. And one thing which I don't think, it's amazing, my generation and older don't get at least this, which is that, I mean, stop really and think about what I'm about to say. Essentially, all of the world's knowledge is at all of our fingertips essentially for free. Right? Something big and good is going to happen from all of this, all the trade-offs of the things that happen in the world right now. Why shouldn't it be happening in the Middle East? Why shouldn't it be happening in Africa? It started in Latin America and South America. It started in Eastern Europe. And it's something that's very, very profound, to which I cannot tell you, because one, I have no crystal ball, and two, because despite this amount of time and wonderful experiences I've had in the Middle East, I don't consider myself an expert in the Middle East. I cannot tell you what Syria will look like in six months or three years. I can't tell you what Egypt is going to look like for three years in three years. But I can tell you with 100% certainty, there are going to be a lot more people with a lot more technology in their person in that period of time. That, to me, is the most central question anyone who's either entering the world right now or Lord knows any, any top-down institution, whether it be government, financial, big business, whatever else, should be asking themselves, are they positioned for that? Because as I interviewed in the book, you will see that I interviewed a lot of the major mobile players in the Middle East, and every one of them to a person said that within three years, now two years, a year after I did the interviewing, there'll be 50% or more penetration of smartphones in Egypt and elsewhere. And as you, many of you know, that's already the case in much of the Gulf right now. I think one of the big mistakes that a lot of women and men make, and certainly Western businesses often make, in fact, I would suggest to you, RIM made this mistake more than anything else in the demise that it's facing right now, which is to think of a smartphone as a highfalutin phone. And you all know, because you all use your smartphones all the time, that they are wonderful phones. You know at the same time that they are wonderful entertainment devices. We have access to video and communication, whether it be shared or we have it in very powerful ways, unlike every time before. A man that I've gotten to know pretty well, whose name is David Stern, who, for any of you who might be Americans here, was the head of the NBA, the National Basketball Association. He was there for like 20 years. He just stepped down, and he's actually going to spend his entire life in emerging markets from now on. Why? Because he knows at the end of the day there are about to be billions of people who can watch basketball on these devices, and so he thinks of them as entertainment devices. 
fine, all true. But what these are in your hands right now, I don't care what devices you have, is the same computing capacity as what put a man on the moon 40 years ago in your pocket now. So if you begin to translate that into the near future of 50% penetration in many parts of the Middle East, or if you believe, as again my friend Mark Andreessen writes in the forward of the book, that there will be 5 billion smartphones on the planet in the next 8 to 10 years. We're talking about two-thirds of humanity who are walking around with supercomputing capacity in their pockets. And that changes, in my view, everything. Because what it really means is a real definition of empowerment. And, you know, it's a cliche. It's thrown around so much in the Internet kind of jargon and the lexicon and all. But, but empowerment hit me like a two-by-four. As the professor mentioned, my last company, HealthCentral.com, was fundamentally a content and social platform uh, in health and wellness. But it was, you know, there was some technical and medical stuff that was involved in it. But what it really was was people who had been there gathering by the millions to share their stories. So it would be like literally a woman who would come online and start talking about not just the medical treatment she's getting when she's diagnosed with breast cancer, but should I tell my children or not my children, tell my children, what's the thing? And what I realized that in the health context, but I think this is true across the entire definition of empowerment, what, what it does is it effectively allows people to say, I'm not alone, I'm not crazy, and I can take actions because a woman or man who looks just like me took the same actions and succeed. I have the power to make things happen and to solve problems bottom up. And in many respects, I think this is the biggest story of the time that we live in right now, which we are shifting to a world with unbelievable access to emphasis of problem-solving and innovation bottom up, and a world that's still wrestling the post-cold world top-down institutions. And it's having enormous ramifications, not just in business, but enormous ramifications in how we function as societies and what that will open up overall. The most interesting question that I get most repeatedly from journalists, and I say interesting in that I'm sort of baffled by the question, is our startups in the Arab world, our startups in the Middle East, because of the Arab Spring? And the question, thank you, I mean, that's exactly the reaction I get. First of all, I don't like the term Arab Spring, so you'll see I don't use it in the book at all. But the question is, is sort of stuck in a narrative of chronology. But the fact is, if you believe there's any veracity in anything that I just said about the bottom-up access of the technologies that possibly have opened, that means that we want our political voice. We want to have a voice in the way things are run about it. Which, of course, means we want our societal voice. We want to be able to talk about what kind of society we want. We want to have open discussions about what are the role of women in our societies and what opportunities are being put aside because of many, many stupid things that have come before. We have open, unbelievable opportunities to talk about our own sense of spirituality and religion. Why would that not also mean we want to have the open flexibility to not only have a conversation, but to act on our economic futures? And by the way, you know, a lot of people talk about the youth bulge in the Middle East now, and you guys probably know the statistics better than I do, but in some countries it's like 60% of the population under the ages of 25. I can tell you right now, and I'm not an economist, but I interviewed many economists, there is not a scenario for traditional ways of doing business or traditional government programs to address this opportunity, which, by the way, now can be addressed by individuals themselves bottom up, if in fact it's embraced, which I'm going to come back to in a second. There's an amazing woman from Cairo who I interviewed who said something that hit me like a two-by-four, and I think to many of you it will sound very obvious, but it did hit me by a two-by-four. And she said, you know, the top-down world thinks of people rising, certainly people in poverty, as problems. And we in the institutions in Washington, D.C., or Brussels, or wherever you are, we'll have the answers for you. Don't tell me what you want, because we know what's best for you, 
and then we're going to give it to you in that kind of a powerful way. Well, she said, in the new world, people aren't problems, people are assets. And she doesn't mean that from an asset allocation basis. She means it's problem solvers. Because who has a better idea of how to solve problems in and around your environment and your community and anyone else than the people who live there? But now the thing about technology is it becomes unbelievably scalable. My best ideas can be shared with your best ideas, can be shared with your best ideas, and all of a sudden something very, very interesting can happen. Nothing that I'm saying takes away from the difficult realities that we see and you all know so well in parts of the world. I will speak for 30 seconds as an investor. Investing in emerging growth markets is not for the faint of heart. The shifts that I'm describing that are happening now in terms of rising middle classes and access technology, unbelievable generations of poverty, these are not to be poo-pooed or to be put aside. We know what those scenarios look like. My prayer for this book, my prayer for you as you think about things beyond not just this book in the Middle East but other things, is that we can look and ask ourselves what will the next 10 years look like as opposed to the last 10 years? And what's different? And I think when you ask an unbelievably simple question, things become very, very powerful. Let me talk, if I could, for a couple of minutes about the kind of amazing entrepreneurs that I've met over in the region overall. And because this is what editors, no offense to me, but this is what editors and publishers want to do. They ask me to bucket this, and it's unbuckleable. And in many respects, there's overlap in what I'm about to say, but bear with me if I can bucket just for a few minutes overall. But I, I broke them into the, into the areas of improvisers, problem solvers, and global players. And improvisers are often called in the VC world, the venture capital world, copycats. Somehow or other, I found that a very sort of degrading kind of term. But the theory is, it's worked somewhere else, and so now I'm going to take it to my country and maybe put it in my language of a few cultural sensitivities, and then that's very, that's fine. And I don't know why anyone denigrates this concept, because the fact is, as emerging growth markets are beginning to enter the technology age, there's a lot of the top-down people who are extremely risk-averse. And so if the early stage is to say, look guys, we all know that Amazon.com is a wonderful thing in the United States, why won't you help me invest in soup.com? Well, they can say, well, wait a minute, I get Amazon.com. Soup.com is totally different. It's actually targeted to the market of 350 million people. And so I get it. I can move forward. There's a reason why the first great, great, the first largest technology companies in China, in Russia, and other emerging markets are things like search engines. They're things that have happened before because I just think that's the first introduction. The founder of Matu, which many of you will remember was the Yahoo of the Middle East that got bought by uh, Yahoo for about $200 million, said to me very provocatively, imagine if someone had come from the Middle East and said, I've got this great idea eight years ago to start Facebook. Can you imagine what his parents would have said? Well, wait, does that have to do with anything? That's crazy stuff. Go keep your job, get your engineering degree, I don't want to hear about it. Imagine going to a venture capitalist and saying, I've got this great idea called Facebook eight years ago. I mean, there are stages and evaluations of things, which I think it's just a wonderful phenomenon where success breeds success, which I think is very, very powerful. I have to tell you, to me, one of the most moving and one of the most inspiring things that I've seen is what I call the problem solvers. And this is, again, these amazing entrepreneurs who look at their situations around them and say, I can fix this. My generation and older will look at the education problem at least, which is profound from a structural perspective, and say, okay, it's going to take a generation to fix. Any of you have been to Cairo and have been through traffic, you're my age or older, you say, well, you know, someone's going to come in with a big infrastructure project and they're going to have to change this, it'll take a generation to do it. What are amazing about entrepreneurs in the region, around the world, in the United States, completely shared, 
is an idea of thinking of the world as software problems, infrastructure problems as software problems. So I can't fix the roads, but I can build an unbelievable crowd-sharing app to navigate better routes around it. Unbelievably interesting kind of businesses of that kind of stuff. Recycling and garbage is terrible. I have no idea if the governments are ever going to fix it, but quite frankly, I'm not going to wait. Because I know when I go online that there are many parts of consumer electronics, which are a huge part of consumer electronics and old computers, are actually a profound waste problem in a lot of part of emerging growth markets, but particularly in Egypt, and say, I have a great idea. These things are sitting in some, you know, wherever, if they're being collected at all. I'm going to collect them. I found online that there are unbelievable numbers of people um, in Asia who would love certain parts of this. I'll strip out those parts, sell them for a profit, sell the scrap for a profit. I've taken care of all that. I'll make money, but I'll solve a problem. And I think one of the most interesting things happening around the world generally, and I can tell you in the pitches that I received from Silicon Valley and New York and otherwise as well, is that the lines between what was once called in buckets entrepreneurship, i.e. for-profit technology-based businesses, and social entrepreneurship, i.e. I'm just going to make something work very good and I'll be using technology or whatever, the idea that there's a separation between those two I think is absolutely boring. And I think it's an unbelievably exciting phenomenon. Because all of us, if you want to run a great business, have to think about how your business is a good citizen of the community that you live in, and more often than not, because there are so many problems that can be solved, they can be solved both in a socially conscious way as well as something where the profits can be generated in powerful ways. And I want you, do we lose that photograph, by the way? Can you bring them back up? Because I just want you, I'm not going to talk about these women until I get to the end, but I want you to just, just keep an eye on these women, and whatever your narrative, try to figure out who you think they are, and I'll come back to that in the context right now. The global players know that the entire world is one click away. So there are many things that can be done hyper-locally. These amazing women that I've seen have done very, very hyper-local e-commerce sites for crafts and that kind of a thing, which is wonderful. The region-wide Arabic things, things that are sensitive to faith, to the billion market of people who might be uh, uh, celebrating you know, Ramadan or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen that way. But then you have these entrepreneurs who day one say, I can build something that anybody in the world and take involvement. And there are many, many examples, but I have to tell you one of my favorites who I've written about separately, and she's in the book, but I also wrote about it in the book, um, is this woman from Lebanon who was a, uh, a very successful college swimmer. And it drove her crazy when she trained that the only devices she had to measure uh, pulse rate and that kind of thing were effectively uh, devices that were created for running, but they were made like waterproof. So we I mean, stop and think about it. You, you have a, <laughs> something here, and you're swimming. How the hell do you figure out what your timing is in that way? So she designed a very lightweight goggle, almost like a Google Glass-like experience, where you can look up in the screen, and it's measuring your pulse and your rate, heart rate here, and, and you can watch it as you're training overall. And so she immediately knew this was something that could go anywhere that they're great swimmers. She instantly negotiated deals with manufacturing in China. She's having conversations with Speedo and other groups now. We'll be launching literally around the world uh, in the next six months or so, and because she can. I mean, that's just a simple answer to it, I think, in very, very powerful ways. I will say to you, as an aside of this, Heinz, who Robaika, Heinz and Robaika, who I just mentioned, um, and this is very, very startling to a lot of the uh, people, particularly in the United States overall. The economists said, I don't know where they got the number, but I can tell you that anecdotally it supports everything that I've seen and all the different gatherings that I've been to overall, uh, that 30 plus percent of the entrepreneurs, startup entrepreneurs, are women. I was a uh, judge at the MIT Arab Startup Competition a year ago. And it was over 5,000 companies representing maybe 14 or 15,000 entrepreneurs, again, from North Africa to Yemen. 41% of them were women. 
And I can tell you, you can't find anything in the time zone of that in Silicon Valley or New York or anything else. So why? Because technology is available, because their life is about work, great entrepreneurs about working around things, and the women are unbelievably passionate in the leadership impact they have, because they've been making that impact in their communities and their families anyways. It was actually very interesting to me. I have a chapter about women entrepreneurs, and again, every story was unique, every perspective was unbelievably in its, in its sort of essence and unique aspects of it. But there were two kinds of reactions I got when I asked the questions about it. And the first group of women would say to me, um, I can't stand your question. And I said, what do you mean? I said, don't you ever call me a woman entrepreneur again. I'm happy to talk to you about my company all you like. But if you're going to bucket me as a woman entrepreneur, the conversation's over. I don't want to talk about it. I am an entrepreneur. And if you want to talk about entrepreneurship, I will talk about entrepreneurship. And I thought that in and of itself was fascinating. Now, there were many other women I talked about and said, look, let's be real. There are lots of things I face day to day. E-commerce, which I suggested before, is a really, really interesting opportunity throughout the Arab world. One of the largest markets for it is Saudi Arabia. Kind of hard to build a company that relies on Saudi Arabia if you can't drive. All right, so it's, it's not to say that this is not something real overall. But again, to a person, the women entrepreneurs who talked about challenges in their family, talked about challenges of patronizing male venture capitalists, also would tell me at the end of the day what makes for a great entrepreneur is working stuff around. And I will work around because I've spent my life working around and that's why I would be successful, which I think is very powerful. We are obsessed, particularly in the West Coast of the United States, that the term innovation must mean uh, the next new shiny, sexy thing. That's great, right? It has its place. We would not have talked about these 10 years ago. Rim, again, is paying the price for not watching it five years ago. So that's great. But I think that across emerging markets, generally speaking, that there are going to be opportunities of new innovation coming from very, very interesting corners of the world that will be very, very global in nature. If we were sitting here 15 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, and I told you that among the leaders in innovation in consumer electronics or mobile devices from a handheld structural hardware perspective, no one would have thought that Nokia, which of course is a Finnish wood products company, or Japan or Korea would be the leaders. These things happen. They haven't happened yet in software, which I think is interesting. But I think the phenomenon of the distribution, dissemination of software that I've described before, we are going to be talking about amazingly globally adopted, interesting pieces of innovation that are going to come from all over the world. A lot of people ask me, what will the Silicon Valley of the Middle East be? But in point of fact, I think that's no longer a relevant question. I'm not sure it ever was a relevant question. Because at the end of the day, with the diffusion of technology, we're going to be seeing pockets of innovation, I think, around the world. We'll talk a little bit about the ecosystems and the pluses and minuses of that. But I think that's something which is a very, very powerful concept overall. So then you begin to ask yourself, what are unique in experiences of different parts of the world that might have interesting insights into what may come in terms of a broader-based distributed innovation? The Arab world, the Middle East in general, for all intents and purposes, never knew landlines. This is a mobile-first, mobile-oriented society, and I have been blown away by some of the interesting innovations I've seen in mobile devices, particularly in the words of end payments, mobile payments, and kind of working around the systems in that kind of way, and everything from mobile advertising uh, to different kinds of social networks and communications. Anyone who's been to the Middle East, those of you who are from the Middle East knows, there's a lot of sun there. It is no surprise that there's some really interesting startups that are utilizing solar energy and solar power in remarkable ways. Again, in a top-down world, Solar power meant multi-hundred million dollar big government projects to put windmills everywhere and put things everywhere else. Entrepreneurs, problem solving down, begin to ask different kinds of questions. An amazing Egyptian entrepreneur young man that I met 
realized that the largest, which I didn't know, maybe some of you know, the largest collection of fresh water on the planet is under the Egyptian and Libyan desert. Mormons. The only issue is access to it. In Egypt right now, the only access to it is individual pumping, individual pumping uh, funded by the, uh, provided by diesel fuel. Highly unreliable, but very cheap, because the subsidies on diesel were unbelievable. Well, some of you may have noticed who follow energy policy, particularly with the vicissitudes of Egypt, they actually cut that subsidy over the last year. But more importantly, with the unreliability of it and the difficulty in scaling it, this young man said, why are we not developing simple light solar capacity by which individual farmers can over and over again pump additional water to expand their businesses and their agriculture? He's run a study, and I love optimism and a great entrepreneur, so cut it in half. But his study believes that what he's doing in individual solar-powered pumps in Egypt alone could increase arable land by 25%. Let's say it's 10%. What a very interesting development and in how many other parts of the world could benefit from that level of innovation, I think, in very, very powerful ways. There are, as I need not tell you, significant headwinds in all emerging markets. And one of the biggest is, is again, forgive the buzzword, but it is descriptive once you dig into it a little bit, it is what we'll call the ecosystem. Ecosystems really matter. It is very provocative in the bottom-up world that I'm describing that effectively we become a world that works around the Cold War institutions of top-down. And I think there's stunning truth in that potential. But I think it would be a mistake, a profound mistake, to dismiss the power of what is still happening as the 20th century pushes against the 21st. Obviously, the most dramatic example of that, and I was in Damascus two months before hell broke loose, and I know two entrepreneurs that I loved who were killed, that these, the potential there was unbelievable. These young people in Damascus were unbelievable. And by the way, Facebook was illegal, but everyone had Facebook. Mobile connections was terrible. They found ways around it anywhere else. And it was incredibly creative computer animation and other things as well. The top down, for now, for now, has the upper hand. But the top down world isn't merely about the uh, control and devastation. That's easy to understand. But there's another top-down challenge to the ecosystem there, which are things like the rule of law, educational infrastructure, um, and, and just the ability almost culturally to accept failure. Because, you know, the fact that you know, Silicon Valley people say we love failure, and it's utter nonsense. Right? Nobody likes failure. But the one thing that is not nonsense is that there's an acceptance that if the first one doesn't work, you have another day to take that experience into the second one. I've seen, even in the last two or three years, really interesting evolution among young people returning to their parents, particularly after the Arab uprisings, which I think had an amazing psychological impact, even with the vicissitudes of it, of taking away fear. And so with that taking away of fear, there's a more willingness to step up in this. But you know, in Egypt, technically, it's still criminal to go bankrupt. Criminal, not you'd be fine, you could go to jail. Now it's not been enforced, and there are other things that are happening in that regard. Um, but there are big, big issues of just basic rule of law that need to be addressed. I will tell you, I don't invest in China, but I have friends of mine who did. They will also tell you that trying to get through the rule of law of China is a whole other conversation in of itself. And interestingly, in some countries, you lump the Middle East as if it's one thing. Country by country, there's actually some decent rule of law that allows things to happen in very powerful ways. But the interesting story is, again, that even when that infrastructure isn't done, entrepreneurs come around and they begin to fix it in very, very interesting ways. Uh, my favorite is uh, e-commerce I'll come back to again. Every country in the Arab world has unbelievably laborious shipping rules, regulations, and uh, costs and fees associated 
As a friend of mine said, imagine inventing Amazon.com where every 50 state had its own paperwork, its own bureaucrats telling you what to do, and different fines that could happen in anything that happened. They're really not sustainable. Now, there's been some top-down motion of that. The GCC, the Gulf countries, which now, as many of you know, include Jordan, have begun to address in sort of unifying a code and laws and regulations to help this, but it's slow. So what happens? Aramex, Fadi Gondor, who I mentioned before in his company, now he stepped out of the company, is trying to support the ecosystem every way they can. So they've created this thing called eHouse, which is like incubators for startups and e-commerce. In fact, they're saying, albeit for a fee, come build your businesses here and don't spend 15 seconds thinking about getting into the other countries. We're going to take care of the regulatory hassle for you. One day that will change, but we're going to help you get through that as a service to you building things forward. Everyone wins and loses in that kind of thing. Everyone wins in that kind of thing. But still, it is an interesting way of people thinking differently about the ecosystem. Education is a mind-blowing thing. I should put it aside not to encourage you to buy my book on a selfish basis. I'm actually giving all the proceeds of my book away to an amazing social group uh, that is now in Jordan, but it's going to be in Tripoli and Lebanon. They open in Cairo and elsewhere called Ruah. I can't do a Ruah justice here but it's a bottom-up, community-oriented center, owned and of the community in one of the tougher refugee communities in Amman, Jordan. Uh, Aramex, it was a corporate social responsibility initiative kicked off by them, but this is not a top-down philanthropy. Everyone who participates in Ruad has no choice but to participate and give back to the community over and over again. And while they have things like, well, they got, actually got out of healthcare giving, but they have educational programs or computer labs there. They bring in people from outside of the refugee community to talk about business and future opportunities and opportunities in education. One of the most amazing things that it has done is something that's called Dardashat. And forgive me, anyone who speaks Arabic if I've mispronounced it. But I don't speak Arabic, but I sat in on the sessions there, and they were mind-blowing. Because they bring in a community of adolescents who sit in a room bigger than this, with tables of maybe ten women and men each sitting together. And they talk about case studies of everyday things in society. A woman walks down the street, a man whistles at her. How do you feel about that? Why did the man whistle at her? What's going on right now? And they break into these discussions, have conversations that have never happened before. They then become replicated on devices and other kind of connectedness in a very powerful way. And so it's, it's a mind blow. If you, any of you ever go to Oman and you find me, I'll help you to visit this because you should. It will change your life. But I keep bringing that back to the ecosystem because as I alluded before, education is an infrastructural challenge. But not only are there bottom-up initiatives like the one I described, technology is coming involved in a very powerful way. In Egypt alone, in Cairo alone, the supplementary education business is a two to three billion dollar business. What have I just told you? I told you that the schools are not good and that only the wealthy people can afford to get supplemental education. Enter technology. Probably 15% of the startups that I've seen in Cairo are doing effectively the Khan Academies or you know, um, uh, you know, any of the Coursera but effectively translating curriculum courses for young people up onto video for free distributed. MAPHAM is one of my favorite ones, but there are dozens of them overall. They have millions of people who go every week to it now around Egypt, accessing on dumb phones as well as smartphones, as well as watching videos on computing. They have over 8,000 crowd-shared videos of basic mathematic and language training that's on the site right now that's being developed, success breeding success. This isn't just about the wealthy, it's about anyone who has access to technology in a very, very powerful way. I'd like to wrap, if I could, I ramble enough, but I, I want to come back, if I could, to the picture, and really would love to make this, this conversation as you're willing to make it overall. Um, does anyone want really to guess who these people are? 
They are that. How did you know that? The flag. The flag. All right, you it. That's fine. All right. So there's a back to kind of tying many of these factors together. There's an amazing organization called Injaz Al Arab, and it's a, sort of based a little bit on Junior League, which is a global organization. And they've been around now, I think, 10 or 15 years. And they've been pushing and developing entrepreneurship courses in schools all around the Middle East. Literally millions of kids in the public school system and non-public school system have listened to this whole idea of a vision of what a future could be like. And what are the basics of entrepreneurship? Not just tech entrepreneurship, but you know, what's an asset and a liability? What's making money, losing money? Why would you come up with a business idea? I mean, it's an amazing phenomenon. Tens of thousands are doing it every year. I wish it was 200 million, but I mean, this is where they started and have grown very successfully. Every year, they have a startup competition of high school kids who come in from all over the region, and they're mind-blown from Ramallah, East Jerusalem, different parts all over, and they have these amazing solutions often with their communities or things that are pretty bigger. These young women are 16-year-old, self-described uh, tech geeks from Yemen. The challenge that they found in their neighboring community, which was mostly a tent community, is that uh, there are fires because of kerosene and kerosene lamps. And they felt in this day and age it's absurd that we don't have solar charging stations that would allow women to, and men and people in their tent communities to put in just some basic lanterns and lights and take care of them. So their high school project was to develop charging stations for distribution to the lanterns so they could do this and implement it within the community next door to them. And by the way, when they came in to make their presentation, they were dressed like all of you here. And when they knew they were finalists, they put on their finest, the great traditional Belgian, game, which I found very moving. In fact, when I was sitting there, I heard them before I saw them, because they had this amazing sort of jewelry and other things around them. You literally heard the clanging of bells from behind me, and I turned around, and there they were, you know, coming out with their chins out and their shoulders back. One of the judges said to me, he said, okay, this is a mind blow. What you're doing is unbelievable, good for you. But I'm just sort of curious, where did you get the solar panels? with the assumption, old narrative, that they might have gotten from some NGO or some top-down organization, provided them. And they said, oh, no, no, we built them. They said, what do you mean, you built them? She said, oh, yeah, yeah, go on YouTube and go on the Internet. There's only a hundred ways to build <laughs> solar panels based on materials that you have at hand. And another one takes out this other little solar panel. She said, you know, we've been putting these in umbrellas because the women often carry umbrellas because of the sun, and now we've embedded fans in them and everything else. And in a way, it's in a capitalization of almost anything that's happening. I think, you know, of a hopeful scenario that's different from that. Some of you will remember, others of you have read the amazing political figure, I mean, he's sort of up there, I think, almost with Mandela, um, uh, Vaclav Havel, who was uh, uh, the first head of Czechoslovakia right after the fall of the Berlin Wall. He was a poet and a playwright, very remarkable kind of figure. He makes a, a distinction, which I found very useful in life overall, between optimism and hopefulness. And effectively, what he said is optimism means it's all going to work out. It's all good for it. Life is good. Tomorrow's a sunny day. That's great. He said, hopefulness is sometimes it doesn't work out, but it made sense. And I'm a hopeful man. And that's why I wrote that book, and that's why I'm here with you today. So thank you. I have to say, that's nothing short of inspirational. Uh, reading the book, was uh, gave me exactly the same feeling. These wonderful stories of, of imaginative, energetic uh, people uh, doing amazing things on so many, uh, and on a local scale. It's just uh, <clears throat> very moving, I have to say. Okay, well, we're we're well on track. Uh, why don't we open it up for questions and answers, and we have um, about 45 minutes for that. Well, again, please identify yourself. Yeah, you not only identify yourself, and your affiliation. tell me why you're here. 
Well, actually, I'm a father of my son, and <laughs> he came from Bahrain yesterday to attend the rupture. I'm uh, originally from Bahrain. It's uh, Bahrain, but I'm born here. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm really delighted that I come here, and uh, I have just uh, one question. Uh, I don't believe in uh, conspiracy theory or something like that, and. Uh, I'm, I'm based in Bahrain. I have many companies in, uh, in Qatar and Saudi. You know, Bahrain is connected to Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Dubai. And when Condoleezza Rice uh, mentioned uh, important points about uh, there is a new Middle East is coming to the market, everybody is laughing. There is a picture of four presidents, well, now in a president, and one died. They laughed on her. And I have stocks in in, uh, in iPhones and uh, Apple and Intel and many things. I can see from that day there is a big investment happen into Apple. The stock worth twenty dollar, they reach seven hundred dollar. I don't believe in conspiracy theory, but they're making chaos right now in most of Arabic areas. Syria, look what happened in Syria. Look what happened in. Uh, Egypt, Tunisia, things like that. Do you think that the media and invention and internet help those? And do you think that you are so optimistic that it's going to be, there is a change after three or five years? Look what happened in Iraq. After 20 years, there is three trillion corruption. Nothing happened. Do you know what the largest tech IPO was in the first quarter of this year in the world? The mobile provider of Iraq. Five and a half billion dollars, and it's up 15%, 20% since then, amidst the chaos. This is again, and I, I can't emphasize this enough. This is a hopeful talk about something that no one spent, very few people spend time even considering. Does it answer all of the questions of corruption? Will regimes use the same technology that I find so powerful as devices to crack down to invade privacy? Trust me, this is one of the biggest issues even in the United States right now in terms of thinking about it overall. I don't have crystal balls, but what I can tell you is two things. One, something is happening that isn't going back. And secondly, the nature of it is very powerful. So if I could digress a little bit, but it will be relevant to your question overall. Those of you from the Middle East will know this term. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know it until I went to Lebanon, though I understood the concept well. And it's a word called wasta. And wasta, <laughs> yeah, you laugh, so then you definitely know what wasta is. But I mean, it's effectively... Who do you know, right? But it's much more complicated than that. I mean, every society, God knows London has who do you know. I'm from Washington, D.C. There's plenty of WASTA there in its own form. WASTA is an anvil, though, on a culture. It's an anvil on young people who have ambition because it's not only about who do you know to get that first job, but once you're in an organization, you've got people sitting upon you who are protected by WASTA, effectively. One of the most powerful quotes that I got in my interviews here, which is provocative, not final, provocative, is that there is no WASTA on the internet. And what it means by that is that the definition and nature of the transparency and the fact that so much is happening so quickly around the kinds of forces that you worry about, that something other interesting may be happening here. Let me give you a more specific example. LinkedIn opened for the first time last fall, now almost a year ago, a little bit less than a year ago. For the first time they opened up offices in the Middle East. Before they got there, Six million Arabs were already signed up for LinkedIn without any presence whatsoever. LinkedIn, by definition, you, you can't watch the LinkedIn. Your record is your record, your track record is your track record, and people vote for you, vote for you. 
and it opens up a different kind of dynamic. Does it open up and clear out everything that's come before? Russia has unbelievable talent, and the regime has cracked down on that talent in a very, very profound way. Regimes are making choices here. The dean of Harvard Business School, who was a friend of mine, and actually a professor of mine, some years ago, had a very provocative conversation with me, which I think goes in respects to the question of what you're asking. He said, you know, maybe it's possible. Is it worthy of consideration that in emerging worlds there are going to be different models? So that if you're, for example, China, and you're moving at 150 miles an hour, you know, can you do little things to hold back some of what I've been talking about? If the car's still moving at 120 miles an hour, maybe that's just fine. Looking at China today, I'm not persuaded that that is, in fact, happening. And more importantly, in a lot of emerging growth markets where we're moving 20 miles an hour, the decision to try to stifle this will have a generation opportunity that will play to your worst-case scenario. In fact, I believe, particularly in the Arab world, that many top-down institutions think, first and foremost, about their self-preservation, and the Internet is a communications tool to help control that. I think Jordan is one of the most remarkable countries I've met. I think the King of Jordan is a remarkable figure in his support of ICT, uh, Information and Communication Technology. There's a reason why some very exciting things are happening in Amman as much as anywhere there. Jordan last year passed really chilling Internet laws about quote-unquote journalism. But these laws are so wide, if you're running an e-commerce company, is it possible that comments in an e-commerce company could be considered quote-unquote journalism? It's because there's a mindset that says this is all about somehow constraining discussion. But in point of fact, what they're doing, like the Soviet Union did, is they're constraining the very thing which is the economic future. In the old days, it was constraining capital. Syria constrained capital. Make 10% of the wealthy, wealthy and keep them happy, and the other 90% you can push aside. And now we can try to do the same kind of thing with the Internet. The difference is now 100% of the people, or soon 100% of the people, have access to the platform of expression and the platform of economic development. How that plays out, I don't know, but I can tell you this, it's different. It's really, really different. Thank you, Thank you. it's a great question. Hello, my name is Ranjiv, I'm a management consultant. My observation... Can I ask you why you're here? Sorry? Why are you here? I mean, uh, so the reason I'm here is, is to obviously understand other people's perspective <coughs> on, the, on the GCC area. My personal experience has been that uh, the companies I'm advising in the UK are actually taking the lead to do business in the GCC area, especially in the so-called events management area, because there's so much growth in terms of GDP growth. Yes. So I can relate to your, your point that uh, there is opportunity there, and it's just a case of seeing that. Now, we are growing so rapidly, we can't find the staff in London to fill the, the roles that we have, linguistically and other things. So we're, we're growing at a, at, a, at a good rate, but I feel that the big market is the GCC crowd where we are taking British products and services to the Middle East. And that's what we're doing, and to back up what you were saying. So what is wonderful, and that's, first of all, it's a great story, and a great thing that, that's been established. But the thing that was important in what you said, which is, but I poked fun at it, but didn't poke fun at it, because I think it's very serious, is too many Western companies, again, think of this almost in a top-down way. What can you do? We're going to take you for us. And what is very, very interesting is that I think we're entering a world of co-authorship. The expertise, innovation, certainly understanding of the markets at the local level is a no-brainer. I think that's been even accepted by big companies for a long time. But as you engage in, in um, real partnership, as you engage in new kinds of innovation, it becomes a level, level playing field, or it has to be. Because, because over, yeah, over there, you have to have a local partnership, and you rely upon that local partnership. It's not a case like in the UK, you can set up your own shop. 
you need to have a, a partner over there to, to do things. And they have to own, co-own the, the, the venture. And why wouldn't you want to? No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Because it, it, it adds local content to what you're building upon. And it's very important because you can, you can be in the UK uh, in a satellite office and trying to remotely run things. It doesn't work that way. So you need to have physical presence. And at the moment, we are recruiting very rapidly to find suitable parties uh, and, and individuals to grow within the firm. Okay, in the back. Yes, my name is Christopher. and they like their future and they like the community around them and they have peace with themselves and they have peace in the world around them and they factor in peace. But, but it's a, I, I get, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. There was a pretty senior person at the State Department who asked me, you know, what can the government do more and what can some of these establishments do more? And um, I said, honestly, just stop talking about it. Right? Because like, the speeches are unbelievable. And they're speech after speech after speech. And, and the, this is a particularly a, a charming American Thing, but there are versions of it in, in many different countries right now, which is I, I think they've stopped this time. But I'll never forget it, that, that Dubai event that I told you about. And there was someone from the State Department who said that the, the, the number one export of the United States is entrepreneurship. And you could literally see 2,000 people saying, we've been entrepreneurs for 10,000 years. We're fucking talk. I mean, you know, it's just sort of silly. I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. And so there's a, a mindset to which I say, you know, stop talking about it, right? And, and if we don't pick winners and losers, you don't have to be elaborate. This is not about huge amounts of money, but the money does have, can have a place because money is needed and a lot of it. A lot of it's just kind of basics of kind of getting out of the way and doing things that really mean something. I'll give you a silly example again from an American perspective. Then I'll talk about the other side of the coin. So, um, amazing startup in Egypt right now. These amazing, amazing guys. And they had a really very, very good idea, and they crossed the path 
of a couple of the very top Silicon Valley venture capital firms. And they said this must have been maybe May, April or May of last year. It's look, if you guys can be here by the first week of June, we're going to do a series here. It's got to be in person. Can't do this on Skype alone. This is really about human engagement, where you want to be. If you guys can be here first week of June, you know, you're going to get a meeting that, that 90% of us tech startups would give a left leg to be left alone. So they go running down to the embassy to get their visa, and the answer was, well, you can have a meeting in August. A meeting to get a visa three months after the meeting. Right? I mean, so how hard is it to fix that kind of stuff? And so that's when I, when I say to people, like, stop saying entrepreneurship is a good thing and patting people on the head. Just do the kinds of things that allow people to facilitate it, and the, the rest, perhaps, perhaps, will take care of itself. Okay. The other side of the equation. Um, government, NGOs, will often fund things that nobody else will. This is the reality also. So my favorite recent story is, and some of you guys might know, you may have even participated in a startup weekend. You know what this thing is. So it's a program that was, is, I forget where they're in Seattle or Chicago, I can't remember what it is. But, but you know, it's a group of like 30 people, and they have like a curriculum of how to do startups. And they effectively license their name out. Anybody, anywhere could put together a startup weekend. And then people in the community will come to it, and they'll use the curriculum, and use the brand. Sometimes they'll bring in speakers or whatever else. It's actually kind of fun, because unlike typical pitch where companies show up and then pitch, more often than not, like 200 people will show up, and then they'll pair them up into groups and ask them to create problems right there on the spot, which actually some amazing businesses get started that way and get funded later. But also, it's just a fascinating way to learn about what it means to think about a startup and everything else. So if I had to ask you to guess where the last startup weekend was, two weekends ago, would you be surprised if I told you it was Gaza? 250 young people showed up. Uh, Oasis 500, who I'm on the board of, who's a Jordan incubator, was just blown away by what they saw in terms of talent and capacity of these young people. In fact, I mean, so I got to write the story, and I, and I wish I, I had before, but obviously it happened after the book. But the, the head of um, Oasis 500 will talk about the virtually one kilometer walk in a cage. It's like the largest cage on earth. You have to walk in order to get into Gaza, you know, through security and this kind of thing. And then you get there, and they're greeted by these kids who have great ideas and everything else. Mercy Corps really played a huge role in making that happen and coordinating other people, bringing some money to the table and that kind of stuff. So I'm a bit, I'm a very cautious for the reasons I described before, and yet I know there are places that are hard to break through in the narratives that I started this conversation, that in the end, um, UN education, you know, there's an amazing uh, education program that the UN does for refugees. I mean, it's changed people's lives. I know some unbelievable entrepreneurs, where they not had that opportunity, I wouldn't be talking about them today. So. It's, it's a both kinds of a thing, but um, you know, I guess I start a role just saying either get your actions right or just stop talking about I mean, it. Yeah, basically they, there's so much hunger to, for entrepreneurship. And, you know, in Afghanistan, they have 600 billion pounds of aid money. They don't want aid money. They want to make your own money. What a fiasco. Top down. And in many other countries. And many other countries, yeah, too. Yeah, and lots of women. Uh, fiasco. Coming back to Afghanistan, and women are much better than men. Generation of people deserve better. Okay, we have lots of questions, so keep the con questions as concise as possible so we can democratize this. In the back, please. Or, oh, you're in charge. Oh, but then let's get her also. Oh, go on. No, let, let, yes, indeed. Let's start with you in front. No, no, let's start with you. No, okay. Hi, uh, my name is Shrines. Um, I'm an embassy finance and private equity student here at the LSE. Uh, the reason I'm here is one day I aspire to obviously become an entrepreneur myself. And the Middle East is a great place to set up that kind of business. Um, my question is a two-part question. Uh, first part is your talk touched a lot on technolo technology-driven entrepreneurship. 
I wanted to ask you about non-technology-driven entrepreneurship in the Middle East. Um, what role does it play? How does one go about doing something like that? And what avenues can be explored? And the second part of the question is about culture. Um, culture in Middle East is very different to culture in other places. And by which I mean between different countries. How they expect foreigners coming into their countries and doing business and how they interact with them. Um, I've traveled far and wide um, through my young days, and I've seen how differently people approach different situations, and I wanted to get your perspectives on that. And finally, I'm also going to Jordan in December, so I'd love to get here about the things in Oman. You let me know how I can help you and who you'd like to see there, because I'd be honored to connect you that way. Two essential questions overall. Um, and I'll come back to, to technology, even what I'm about to say. Not unlike what I said before about 10,000 years of entrepreneurship, that is the story that's happening you know, in, in all sorts of walks of life. And so, for example, a friend of mine just shared this with me who actually works with entrepreneurs more in a lower tech scenario in many emerging growth markets, not just in the Middle East. In fact, they're only starting in the Middle East right now, but they've been throughout Africa and places in Latin America and elsewhere. Um, it, it may be probably know that. You know, there are 2 billion subsistence farmers on the planet today, 80% of whom are women. Think about that for a second. Are they entrepreneurs? You bet they're entrepreneurs in many ways. If you talk to friends of mine in Egypt, many of the women community have long at home had uh, community-based businesses, whether it be crafts and other things, that they will bring to bear in very powerful ways. If you visit Rawat, or if you visit the Rawat in Cairo, um, there are entrepreneurs everywhere doing basic kinds of things. I'll never forget me and this young man who was 16 in one of the poorest parts of Cairo. Um, who looked like he was about 14, by the way, because he was 13, because of food and nutrition and all. And he was starting and learning through the reward like program um, how to be an entrepreneur in making shoes. That's all he wanted to do. And so I asked him in translation, out of curiosity, what were you doing before this? He said, well, I worked for a sweatshop making shoes. And I said, what's the difference? And he said, no one beats me, and it's my own. And that, to me, it goes back to the story about empowerment. Having said that, one should not dismiss the fact that what is viewed as non-tech businesses, they're all becoming tech-enabled. So many of the women that I describe in these fiber-based businesses, as I suggested before, are going online to market their goods. They're using dumb phones as ways to communicate and do outreach, and obviously in the cases of parts of Africa, move dollars in very powerful ways. So they're part and parcel to be of the same thing, only that they'll become more so with not just, I'm inventing a new software business, but remember what I said before about my experience in Asia, it's like lights. We're not going to be talking about electrical entrepreneur. We don't talk about electrical entrepreneurs. I don't know whether we're going to be talking about tech entrepreneurs as a distinct factor as things move forward, I think, in a very powerful way. Culture. You know, frankly, you know much better than I do the incredible, interesting things that happen in culture. I mean, I'll give you one anecdotal experience that I had, which is at a very high level, and that's not even taking it down to a hyperly local or regional or tribal kind of level at all. But I was in... Um, some panel somewhere, I can't remember else. And um, there was a, a guy who does amazing stuff in the ecosystem in tech entrepreneurship in Cairo, and really was just describing how there's no, nothing like Cairo. I mean, this is the place to be, and even this great uncertainty when it comes back, it's going to come rolling back, and the caliber of engineers are better. And there were two uh, Jordanian entrepreneurs sitting there, and I thought they were going to come to fisticuffs. I mean, it was just, you could see them rocking back in their seats, and they jumped up and said, No way, Amon is better than you, and that's kind of thing. Well, look, man, I, I mean, it's. None of this solves human nature. It has a certain distinct aspect in many different long-standing 
cultures where hierarchy is established in it and who's up and who's down is established in very powerful ways. And how that will really play out, I don't know. But not unlike there's no lost in the internet, what has never ceased to amaze me is that regardless of one's status, education, cultural background, religious outlook, and when you get entrepreneurs in the room from anywhere, they like speak the same language. They solve problems the same way, they can have problems in the same way. Their absolute courage in walking through walls to make something happen, no matter what happens, has been for me, maybe naively, but descriptively, shockingly uh, uniform. So we'll see how that plays over time. Okay. Um, hi. Um, my name is Gila Norwich. I'm a first year MBA student at London Business School. Um, why are you here? Sorry. Why are you here? Exactly. No. Why are you I, I here? skipped out on my, on my corporate finance class. Awesome, so, so that's why you're here. Uh, <laughs> okay. um, no, but I'm very, very interested in entrepreneurship in the Middle East, so obviously the talk. Um, I'm interested also in social venture capital. I'm going to be chairing the social venture capital competition at, at London Business School. Awesome. We're going to be doing a great deal of recruitment from the Middle East and from Africa. Um, so kind of on that level, I also wanted to get a sense of where things stand there. Um, I guess I have two questions, and they're sort of related. My questions are, um, you talked about some rule of law challenges and saying that kind of the infrastructure or the law is not in place um, um, to sustain or to, to help to assist these businesses sort of get started or maintain themselves or grow. Um, but I'm wondering if during the Arab Spring you did notice or we did come across or through friends or research, um, you are aware of certain changes that happened during the recent time period that did facilitate or enable um, businesses to get started or things to happen, let's say, in a very broad sense that weren't able to happen before. And then um, you also mentioned this concept of uh, entrepreneurs are working around things. And I'm wondering if there are entrepreneurs that are actually working together with the government um, in interesting ways or working to address sort of like more infrastructural challenges uh, and gaps. I've never seen any government in the Middle East, in my experience, for example, is in the time zone, of the very specific, albeit top-down approaches that, for example, Korea took in terms of broadband access, in terms of encouraging development of companies and entrepreneurship, um, and the education reform that they did over a 10 or 15 year period. So I haven't seen that yet. I have to tell you, um, the closest, but still not there, uh, absolutely, it's Jordanian government. Oasis 500, which is this incubator there, just truly one of the great, you know, incubator is a, it's both a physical environment that also provides money and education, mentorship, access to computers, access to laws to literally incubate companies. And there's some amazing ones here in London, the great ones in Berlin, all over the world. So people can argue about the veracity of the model, but it's an interesting one. Oasis 500 was kicked off by the King of Jordan. I mean, it's absolutely his vision, but he envisioned it from the beginning as a public-private partnership. I will support it, I will back it, I'll do everything you need, I'll even put a little bit of money on it, but the private sector has to take over. And it's really, really successful. And so there's absolutely no question that one has to tip one's hat to that kind of thing. Dubai and the Emirates there have been doing some very interesting things uh, to begin to really push these ecosystems in more powerful ways. And there is some flattening of the laws, but candidly, not enough. Because despite my enthusiasm about bottom-up, there's unbelievable things that top-down needs to do, has to do, to really allow this. And, and Canada, this is my interpretation. I can't say anyone has said this to me and I'm reporting it to you. I, I just think it's not enough on enough people's radars. I did have one diplomat say to me once, well, you know, that's a Western thing. And I said, what's a Western thing? It's all this tech stuff. 
COD, which is highly efficient, as you can imagine, and opens up many kinds of complexities. And so uh, there's not yet the comfort and the trust to be using credit cards online. So what ends up happening? Well, there are unbelievable companies, mobile payment companies, and uh, COD enabling companies. Soup.com uh, kicked off one called Cashew, that's effectively cash payment cards, so that people can transact e-commerce to pay for them in cash cards. Pre-paid. Yeah, pre-paid. Pre-paid. Exactly. Right. So you added that to other, now, I mean, again, to what I said before about amazing debates that are going on, there's an amazing debate going on among e-commerce companies about, you know something, this COD is crazy, maybe we should just suck it up and say we're not going to take it, and let's just see if we can drive it more importantly. Eh, maybe. You have to have realities about what your markets are as like. But the second thing is that, I didn't mean to be cavalier when I said before, interesting opportunities begin to develop and they take on a life of their own. I mean, I'm old enough to remember that people would go into a bank and wait online with 50 people while the ATM machines right next to them were empty. Right? And then all of a sudden that shifted and never would go back. PayPal, which is hardly a cavalier business, opened up operations for the first time in the Arab world also about nine months ago, run by this amazing Lebanese who spent a lot of his time building the payment system you know, for Visa in um, Brazil, which is not, by the way, a great ecosystem. He knows exactly how this stuff works and how it can move. He was stunned, even in the uncertainty of Egypt, the number of Egyptian businesses who signed up to have the ability and capacity to get around this. So part of it is a shifting move. Part of it is a behavioral change based on trust. But the other thing is, again, technology solves some interesting uh, questions. So as an example, and many of you probably know this, most people in the United States do not. The largest in aggregate dollars, not in per capita dollars, the largest in aggregate dollar mobile payment country on the planet is Kenya. Kenya. 20% of the entire GDP goes through a cash dumb phone capacity called Mpesa. 20% of the entire GDP. Why? Because there's no banking system. They created a banking system with tens of thousands of cash handlers in different parts of the location. No longer, I mean, just think about the repercussions of driving 250 miles to make a cash transaction versus doing it at a, CV, at a, at a, a drugstore near your home and that kind of thing. And then when that happens and smartphones come, you're going to have the next iteration. So these are, are interesting challenges, but the workarounds are spectacular. And again, when it moves, it moves, and it never moves back. Do you reckon it will be mobile operators or banks though, that become the key so one of the most wonderful, wonderful questions, and the answer is I don't know. And, and the fact is, in some cases, it will be the mobile providers. In many cases, it's the startups themselves who are neither. In some cases, they're going to be in places like in Kenya where there's not a good banking system. In other places like Egypt, it's going to have to. People, there are not a lot of people actually put deposits in banks in Egypt, but the banking system is actually quite strong politically. So to be able to do an M-Pesa in Egypt is not practical without some efforts within the establishment that are invested there as well. So, you know, I think it's going to be an interesting motion. But this almost goes back to the top-down ecosystem and regulatory environment, because one of the most amazing stories really hit me like a two-by-four. There's a great mobile payment, really good technology that I saw a company that released, and they needed to get basic regulatory approval just to begin to do what they're doing. And they realized when they went to their government agencies, they didn't know who the hell to talk to. So to go to the phone people, because they're mobile, and they're like, oh, we don't, you're a bank. Don't go to us, go to the banking regulator. And they go to the banking regulator and say, this isn't a bank. There's nothing to do with the bank. Those guys over there are the ones who are responsible for transfer of payments. And also you realize, in fact, there's no regulatory environment at all. So what are they doing? They're building the company. And, and you know, they'll ask permission later. And, and finally, virtual currencies, do you think then they have an opportunity to move that? You know, look, I, I mean, I think we're all going to be talking about virtual currencies, so I'm not a big Bitcoin guy yet, and there's yeah. a time to everything. Um, but remember, in a, in a community where people still are uneasy about credit cards online, 
it's going to take some time. It's happening in Asia, Korea, Japan, to some degree. Okay, it's still not done. It'll come. Okay, the question in the back. Yes. Yeah, my name is Chukudi. Chukudi. Uh, I'm just interested in entrepreneurship in general. And my question is, what do you think uh, the idea of a single story, do you think it will have an adverse effect on Western economies in the long run? Say the single... The idea of a single story, looking at uh, Africa and Europe, looking at Africa and Europe just in one narrative, do you think it will have an adverse effect on the European economies in the long run? So, I mean, I'm not sure, but, and tell me if I'm not answering your question, because there, there are two sort of reactions I have to it, and then you can tell me. First of all, the mistake, which, by the way, I even made in this talk, which is to think of a region as a thing. It's like talking about Africa as a thing, right? Yeah. Mali's a little bit different than Kenya, you know what I mean? A little bit different than Nigeria. So you have that risk. It almost goes back to the question you asked before about cultures and sensitivities. Not being cognizant and aware of that is obviously in and of itself a mistake. So, I mean, that's, that just is what it is in terms of negligent ramifications on this. It never ceases to amaze me, and I don't know if this is just an American thing, right? I think it's a, a human thing now. Is that a lot of what I'm talking about people view as a zero, the question I get often is it's like a zero-sum game, right? And so when I tell the story about inability to get a visa, literally, I've heard this from very senior, very sophisticated, successful both business and government people say, well, who cares? If they came here, they're going to take our ideas and bring them back home. And again, I'm like, you know, the, the problem with longevity is you're actually going to be in power for a while. But you miss that this is not a zero-sum scenario. The idea that we can now co-author great ideas from any corner of the world, the fact that people may come to one country and bring those ideas back home, having gotten to know each other in a very powerful way, which opens up, in my view, an unbelievably accretive effect, I think it's a generation. I mean, that's going to take care of itself over time. But I don't look at it as a negative whatsoever. I look at it as a massive positive. Yes. Um, my name's Marzana. I work for a risk company in London, and I focus on Middle Eastern country, uh, companies, so that's why I'm here. Um, I was just wondering, just on a broad basis, do you, have you had any experience with entrepreneurs in Iran at all? This is a, a wonderful question. I've met entrepreneurs in Iran who come to the gatherings I've come to, but I'm going to Iran in February. And I would have gone regardless of what, I mean, we're in, look, let's just face it, you know, we're, we're, some of you saw BB's speech in the UN and everything else, right? I mean, I saw, I saw this in 1990. Everyone said that Gorbachev was a thug and he's the same as who came before him. And maybe he could have been, but he wasn't. Things changed. This new guy, who knows what this is all about. But man, is it interesting. Is it really, really interesting? Because I can tell you, the talent... You remember I described before that in a lot of cases that the education in the Arab world, you know, amazing amounts of money that actually get spent in public education there, but to the wrong kind of education. 70-person classrooms, uh, rote memorization, uh, teaching to a test, not the mathematics and engineering skills. That's not really the case in Iran. There's some amazing talent there of engineering that I've seen. And if this opens up, I think it's going to be unbelievable. I'll tell you more when I come back. <laughs> okay, we have three or four more questions. I see Jenna uh, on the back, please. Yeah. My name is Michael. Um, I have my own company. I live in Los Angeles, and I'm currently attending an executive program in the International Stock in the Pharmacy of LSD. Uh, I'm in the final stages of a business plan for startup in the Middle East, and uh, I'm interested in finding out uh, what is your recommendation in terms of raising money. Should I go through a Western company, or should I go through a local company? There's an interesting phenomenon in fundraising in the Middle East now, which also... Uh, sorry? Probably come to crowdfunding in a second, because I think that's an interesting idea whose time has almost come, but in terms of equity, I think it only gets you so far. 
I'll come back to that in a second, but I think you're dead on. And I think this is what you know, this is one of the big things we'll be talking about in the next three to five years across the board. It's a lot of nonsense even in Silicon Valley now in the old way of doing business. Um, there actually is a couple of observations. There's a lot of observations. So one very powerful question. There is an uh, amazing rise, even in the brief period of time since I first began to dig into this uh, events that are happening overall in the, what we call the angel round, which is literally 25, 50,000. I mean, with 25, 50, or $100,000, you can get a business up and running in the Arab world in a way that it would take half a million or more within the United States. To put it in a sense of uh, perspective, a great rock star, a recent graduate of uh, computer engineering from Stanford or whatever, even in a startup, even with equity, very likely could command $135,000 or more with options. Uh, in the same equivalent, and many of them are toe-to-toe equivalent, might be 60000 or something like that in different parts, depending on where you're talking about. There has been a tradition of private equity, later stage cash flow business, for some period of time, small but interesting, a Roger being an example of that score. But we're in this very interesting period where what we, in the uh, Silicon Valley world, call the A round, which is You've taken the angel round, you've been around for a year, 18 months, you're actually showing really, really good success. Now you need a million bucks, or two million bucks, or three million bucks. It's really, really hard to find. So a couple of pieces of good news. One, as I, I know right now, several people who are raising funds in the Arab world, of the Arab world, with some Western money, that's going to be focused on um, that kind of investment. So there'll be more of that is coming. By the way, to what I said before about the juxtaposition about government, um, there are amazing uh, things, particularly the European community actually has been doing some equity financing in startups at an A round, which I think is encouraging. So again, while other money isn't, the stuff can step in. That's something to look for. In order to build flexibility for Western money, which money is green, but also there's an expertise that can come with that, it's powerful. And again, a lot of global players would like to have access to Western markets and having a good Western investor might be able to help you do that. Amazing number of startups in the Arab world actually uh, spend the extra money to become Delaware corporations. It's very interesting, but they think that's going to help ameliorate global investment and that kind of stuff because of the rule of laws and eventually covered by Delaware on top of everything else. Um, it really depends how much you want to raise, whether you need smart money or whether you just want green money uh, to keep you going. But it's, it's happening, but it's going to take time. It takes time under the best of circumstances. Uh, these are going to be tough times for that as well. There's a question in the back. Yes. Hi, yeah, um, my name is Jeremy Walker. I'm a startup that works on news gathering and information gathering across the years. Um, Which one is it now? It's called News Fixed. News Space? Fixed. Fixed. Was broken. Yeah, got it. Um, <laughs> my question really, I, I have a specific, we, we do a lot of work in Yemen, and I have particular history and expertise there, and in Yemen, in terms of our recruitment, we find actually we pretty much can't compete in terms of top talent who are attracted to NGOs, government jobs, civil society organizations. There are 13,000 civil society organizations. How do you make the case? I mean, a huge opportunity in a country like that, obviously very um, back down the development scale, but incredible opportunity because of that. How do you make the case to that? I found in the brief period of time, and I have no experience in Yemen, I can't talk about that, but I found in my brief period that the difference between now and even two to three years ago, particularly places like Amman and other Cairo, that the case often still has to be made to the parents as much as to the young people. But at the end of the day, if the young person wants it in their teeth, 
she or he will figure out a way to make it happen. Now, what I've seen much more than you would see in the United States is very often they keep a paying job because they have to. And so they're working really, really hard because they've got their paying job. For good or for ill, the paying job may not be that demanding. And then they're at nighttime can eat and caucus and do what they're doing, I think, in very powerful ways. Uh, whether that scales and how that will play out, I can tell you anecdotally motion in this area. But if some of my investor friends from the region were here, would tell you, even if people are willing to have the passion, even if they're willing to get around what I just described, um, it's a really autodidact community, meaning that while there's some very good engineering programs, a lot of them were even based on getting big company jobs or government jobs for IBM or Microsoft, what have you, which is not the light things that are happening there. So what happens, bottom up, you have large organizations like Aradet or Wanda that's beginning to have literally countless small, countless small gatherings of where great programmers meet with other great programmers to help teach each other and help move them up in very powerful ways. But they would tell you at the same time, it's a variation on your question, we know who the A programmers are. Getting the C programmers with the B is actually our biggest challenge right now. So finding that talent, you might even find the talent that's willing to take the chances that you described, but they might not necessarily at scale be up to the demand which is beginning to rise. But I, to me, that's a timing issue. Just in, let's go to the back person. Yes, in the back. Hi, my name is William McCullum. I work in uh, venture capital. And uh, the question I have here in London, in London and Dublin. Uh, the question I have is around corporates. So you mentioned so far Google, PayPal, LinkedIn, all moving to the Middle East. Where are they actually moving to? Because in Dublin, that's been one of the biggest sources of startups or corporates and the people leading them to start companies. So where are the, the people going, or where are the companies so themselves going? So Dubai is obviously a very big hub for a lot of the groups, but everybody has operations in almost every of the major cities. And what is interesting is that some of the global tech companies and mobile companies act differently about how they are in the ecosystem that they're in geographically, meaning that first and foremost, most of them, like Intel, have been there for decades, established it as sales arms, right? They're not engineers or programmers, they're there to sell to government and to other kinds of things established there. Then all of a sudden, other companies said, wait a minute, there's something really big happening. And not only is this important for us to participate as corporate citizens, but in fact, if the ecosystem builds, there's going to be a whole new opportunity to do very, very different things going forward. So it's an absolutely open way of looking at things. So, for example, Google in Egypt, separate from Google in Dubai, has been unbelievable in their investment in the ecosystem in Egypt up until this day. So they held this unbelievable gathering. And it was controversial because people like to know it was controversial. But the fact is, they put a lot of money into a startup competition where they literally bought buses and drove all around Egypt. This was not a Cairo story, an Alexandria story, but they went to Tanta and other places to evangelize and talk, talk about entrepreneurship and its potential, to generate people's ideas, to give them access to technology, to have this big uh, conference, that they, uh, big competition that they had, where the winner got $250,000. There was a lot of debate about whether the group that won, which was an app company for traffic, as I described, it, was really a startup and it already gotten a lot of attention, and you know, I think people like to grumble. But the fact of the matter was, these are guys who really have stepped in, and the guy who's run Google Egypt has just been very impressive, and really having a commitment not only to the Google mission as a business, but to the ecosystem there. The mobile companies are doing really interesting stuff. So Vodafone Egypt has a venture arm, and they've actually taken a lot of these interesting mobile apps and not only put some capital into them, which is great back to the A-round conversation that we had before, but are also giving them distribution and partnerships because they reach so many people because penetration of dumb phones is 100% or more. So it's, 
the, the, the gravitational bases still come for very obvious reasons to places like Dubai. Sales offices and sizable sales offices are everywhere. But what is more interesting to watch is how these companies are doing very interesting things within those markets. Those, this blew me away when it happened. And like nobody covered it. So I wrote, and again, I was TechCrunch or all things deep. I wrote a piece about it because nobody did it. But like four weeks after Mubarak fell, Intel bought this amazing engineering company in Cairo called Sistisoft. Great entrepreneur built this company from scratch and nothing, 250 Look, Intel doesn't buy engineers if they're not world-class engineers. They believe in Egypt, they believe in the market, they believe in the talent of these people. And that's not sales. So it's, um, it's going to be interesting to watch where that plays out. I can tell you that the political instability in the last year put some people back in their haunches. But we'll see how it plays. Yes. My name is Ali Jassim. I'm a kid. And I was kid. Interested in You're a buddy entrepreneur. I was interested in how we can foster entrepreneurship in the country I live in. Uh, we briefly touched on how education in Iran, the government are spending in it in really interesting ways and encouraging entrepreneurship, whereas other governments are mismanaging their funds. How should governments spend in order to foster an entrepreneurship? an entrepreneur culture? It's a fantastic question. I don't even know if I have an answer to it, and I think it depends a lot in the countries. In fact, I've never been to Bahrain, but I've seen in some of these gatherings some of the entrepreneurs are there. I've in a heartbeat. In fact, you know, here's an interesting thing. They ended up uh, uh, pivoting to a different places, but there's um, one of the great, well, one of the great, one of the biggest um, incubation things in Silicon Valley, second maybe to Y Combinator, is this thing called 500 Startups. And 500 startups is a single piece on a plane where they actually take American venture capitalists and American entrepreneurs and they pay a little bit of money, get on a plane and see other parts of the world, maybe in Russia, uh, Latin America, whatever. So they just announced the next geeks on a plane this November to the shock of Silicon Valley is that they're coming to the Arab world. And Dave McClure, who's the founder of it, in 500 startups, has already invested in three Jordanian companies. Bahrain was one of their shit. We're going to go to Bahrain. That was one of the places they're going to go. And then they made a decision for other reasons uh, to focus elsewhere. But I think some Bahraini entrepreneurs will come there. So just as a quick aside, um, the it's a fantastic. I wish I had a great answer to you. I, I fall into the easy trap of saying get out of the way, which is I honestly think is a, the best kind of cheap shot way to come back at it. But the fact of the matter is a combination of getting out of the way long-term emphasis of not just talking about the importance of entrepreneurship, but giving it a sense of imprimatur the way King did in Jordan, um, and making sure that people have access in ways that they're not necessarily comfortable to everyone having access to this technology, and allowing us a free form of the development and rewarding it, I think has an amazing psychological impact on an environment. And the opposite is also true. The minute that someone has some success and they get cracked down upon, you have chilled the entire environment overall. And as you pointed out so rightfully, this isn't just about Bahrain. This is about Saudi Arabia as well. I wish I could tell you something more intelligent. Thank you very much. Sorry, right. I think we. Okay. Unless she may have an answer. It was, just, it was. I didn't have an answer. I was just elaborating on that. I just. Um, do you think that maybe they're not focusing enough on soft skills in schools, like communication skills, for example, or like working in a team, stuff like that? Like, my impression from um, studies that I've done. Education in the Middle East is that they focus too much on like just learning things off by heart rather yes. than actually like teaching skills that you may need to. I, I, I can't speak enough about it, but what I can tell you in my reporting on this was that the rote learning thing, which by the way is a huge challenge for Asia, right? This is true in China, Vietnam, and other places as well. This idea that you work harder than anybody else and longer than anybody else is not necessarily the answer. If in fact, all you're doing is rote 
learning without any, this is a wonderful entrepreneur said this to me, there was no sense when I was growing up with application. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, you know, we had to take these tests. Teachers beat the hell out of us and told us we would do this stuff over and over and over again. And candidly, I never knew why I was doing it. And when I asked other young people who came to ArabNet and some of these other gatherings where entrepreneurs would gather and talk and everything else, you know, many of them were already accustomed and well-established and thinking about this, but I'll never forget someone saying to me, they didn't say it was about application, but about tinkering. I was never taught to tinker. I was taught that there was an answer, and I had to get the right answer that people would give me. And here I am with a group of a thousand other people in the Arab world, all of whom were tinkering. All of whom are like, Wait, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? And again, it's, it's very easy, and I have to give you guys at the LSE for God's sake, and, it, and it's very easy to get stuck in the, in the anecdote. But the anecdotes are not without some value. And one very interesting thing I can add to that is I, there are these things that Wanda put on called Mix and Mentor. They literally are in every city in the Arab world, they've been going around where they bring together people like me who've been there and have done it, either from the West or from the region, or fighting the war or whatever. And they'll sit down with a bunch of young entrepreneurs and have conversations, and people can ask questions. And I'll never forget the first mix and mentor that I went to. Um, you know, it was like a question and answer. I'm sitting there as the gray hair telling you about, you know, good luck with what it means to be an entrepreneur. Because one of the best circumstances it can be miserable. So that's it. So that two years ago, first one I went to, I'm there. They're asking me questions. That's it. The last mix of mentor I went to was four months ago. It was almost, it was almost as if I was irrelevant. Literally, in this group of 15 young people, they were all answering their own questions, showing each other different things, like pushing each other in different ways. It was literally like I, I didn't have to be there. That, to me, is really interesting. Yeah. By the way, on anecdotes, uh, it was once said by a famous economist uh, some years ago that the plural of anecdotes is data. <laughs> and so, uh, while the book is about anecdotes, it's really, it's really chock full of data. I think we have time for. Uh, I have a question, but I think I'll hold it until later. Uh, but I think we have time for one other yeah, question. I've been trying for the past hour. Oh, you're holding the, la the best to last. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, yeah, it's a very business-oriented kind of conversation, but I come from a political science background, so, and I work for the BBC's international NGO. And so I'm also Egyptian, so I'm actually, you know, friends with a lot of these people they're talking about. But my question was more, um, you know, you talked about this narrative about, you know, social media did the revolution, this kind of stuff that honestly we find kind of offensive. And I never said it's that. Like, For the record, I know, I never but said journalists that. I don't tend to that. say that, and some academics tend to say, oh my God, social media, it wouldn't have been possible to have a revolution without it. So that's also a debatable topic, but it means that you don't even have people behind social media. But the second thing, there's another tendency that was in academia before, which is this whole idea of the regimes, and you picked up on that, you were actually, from the regime's perspective. Um, there was this um, theory about the regime's kind of modernizing or uh, upgrading their authoritarianism <coughs> and it's by opening media and opening you know technology and ICT and just um, you know as a sort of facade um, to, to show there's you know movement and there's innovation but at the same time there's also this idea that it kind of got out of hand with everything that happened after that so I wanted to see what's your perspective on that I think you're dead right you know obviously and again it goes back to the trade-off let me say, though, a couple of things early on. Um, I, you know, it's so interesting to watch people bucket my book, because in the same way human beings are narrative, we are bucketers. And, and this is, this, I should have known this, having lived in Washington for a while, even briefly served in government, 
It's amazing to me that when I talk to political people, they're like, oh, this is a business book. And when I talk to the business people, they're like, oh, this is a society technology book. And when I talk to tech people, they're like, I don't know what the hell this book is. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's more the questions that you got. I mean, for me, it's, it's really interesting because we, I mean, for my work, we work with, you know, we've done like projects on socially responsible media. We've done a drama in Lebanon called Chan Kabut, a web drama. So it's, it's these, it's, not, there's no like business or development or there's no box, but I just was surprised because everyone around me, <laughs> I feel a bit like an outsider to be honest. Well, I, I hope if you remember me for anything, you remember me for two things today, okay? One is that all of us, this is not me preaching, all of us have narratives. And our ability, the minute we get comfortable, we surround ourselves. You know, listen, you know I'm like a fanatic on technology, as you probably can pick up. I think the power of it is, is revolutionary. But it has a two edged sword, like all things do. And the fact is that this technology that opens up all that I talk about also allows us to protect our own um, echo chambers. We have the ability to surround ourselves with people who agree with us all the time. And that, of course, reinforces our narratives, putting it in U.S. context. There are not a lot of people who watch Fox who watch MSNBC. There are not a lot of people who watch MSNBC or John Stewart who watch Fox. And it's a multiplier effect online. It worries me, actually, gravely. And so I hope that you remember me for that the minute that you feel like something is a conventional wisdom, the minute that you are surrounded by people when someone says something different and everyone piles on them, you immediately come to the defense to ask maybe. Maybe the next five years will be different than the last. The second thing is what you just said, which I hope is true, because I've talked a lot through the business lens because I am a businessman at the end of the day. <coughs> this is not a business story. This no, is it is not a business story. It is about something that is flourishing in very, very interesting ways that we can't predict. And again, as I said before, we'll cross the political spectrum, the societal perspective, the cultural perspective, the religious perspective, the, the business perspective, because it's all part and parcel of the same thing, which is I always found breathtakingly silly when people called it the Facebook revolution, because it is all about individuals who now, however, to what I said before, have a facilitating capability to simply have tools that they just didn't have before. There have been revolutions throughout humanity. But let me tell you one of the things that I'm mean, you're Egyptian, so I'm not just sucking up to you, but I mean, <laughs> if you and I were sitting here in December, and, and I, it doesn't matter where you are on Morsi or not Morsi or anything else, it doesn't matter for the purposes of what I'm about to say. I asked myself when they began to crack down on some of the constitutional changes, when they began to aggregate power, I wonder if the, they are betting on people just sort of saying, I'm on to the next thing. And for one year, week after week, and again, we can talk about whether the outcome was good or bad, it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum, but I am in awe of humans, facilitated maybe by technology, but human beings who checked every step of the way. I don't think it would happen in the United States. It's we will move on to Kim Kardashian, and that would be it. <laughs> Hopefully not. Well, I'd like to bring the proceedings to a close, uh, pretty much on time. Um, wonderful questions, lots of active uh, interaction. It was uh, terrific. Thank you all. And please join me in thanking Chris Schroeder for a fascinating talk. Thank you.